0: Chefs without restaurants, episode one sixty two, with Lula Day Mogus.
1: The reason why my cookbook is a little bit different is also the fact that majority of the people that I know are working individuals who who has the four hours to make a stew. None right? of us. Yeah, and I mean, like, and to be honest, as much as I'd like to say that I'm that organized, I don't have all day Sunday to prep and cook for the week. Right? I would like to say I do, but I don't. Um, And so if you are not spending all day on Sunday making all these stews for the whole week, then you're going to come home after work and nothing is going to sound good to Hey, this dish takes four hours to complete (laughs) So, the dishes you can still get the exact same final product with basically without missing any form of of the flavors or the you can still build the flavors in a shorter amount of
0: time. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. This is your host, Chris Speer. On this show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry not working in traditional restaurant settings. On today's show, I speak with Lula Day Moges. She's the author of the upcoming Ethiopian cookbook, Enebla. Lula moved here to the United States from Ethiopia with her family when she was 12. With this book, she wanted to be able to give readers a really great taste of Ethiopian cooking, kind of simplifying some of the recipes to make them faster. In their culture, there's a lot of work that goes into some of these stews, sometimes taking hours. You know, it's a a big thing that they do on weekends to get ready for the week. But how do you, especially if you are a working person, get these recipes done in a shorter period of time without really sacrificing the quality and the taste? On the show, I talk about how I'm a big fan of Ethiopian cooking, which is why I wanted to have her on the show. And I go to one of my favorite restaurants in Falls Church, Virginia, and I talked to the chef and I had asked him, you know, what am I missing when I make this at home? There seems to be a real lack of depth. And he said, well, you know, like with the onions, I cook them for four hours. But like, who can do that at home? And that was the point of this cookbook. How do you achieve those flavors and that depth without having to cook onions for four hours? Having received an advanced copy of the book, I've made three recipes from the book so far, and I have to say they are fantastic. They worked. Really well. And I think people are really going to enjoy this book. If you've never had Ethiopian food, you should definitely try it. I know this isn't a cuisine that people have necessarily in every city. Fortunately, I live in the Washington, D.C. area and they have the largest community of Ethiopian people in the U.S. So we have a lot of restaurants here. So I understand that this could be one of those cuisines that seems really foreign to people. They might think that they have to get all these crazy ingredients that they've never heard of, but that's not really the case. I think, you know, If you can find Burberry spice, which, you know, if you can't find it in a shop, you can get online. That's the big thing I think you really have to get. You know, I made a Tibbs dish last week at home and I used steak. It had jalapeno, onion, garlic, tomato, uh, rosemary. I was growing most of these things at my house and then just the Burberry spice in there. And, you know, this is one of the cuisines my kids really love. I think there's something fun about it, you know, eating with your hands. Who doesn't love eating with your hands? So this is kind of my plea to you to grab this book. The link is going to be in the show notes and try some of these recipes. I really think you're going to fall in love with this cuisine. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I really hope people who've never had Ethiopian cuisine will consider Getting this book and checking out some of the recipes, I really do think you're going to find something that you love there. And as always, you can always connect with me on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants. And if you want more information, go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org. You can find links to our private Facebook group. You can learn how to get more gig opportunities if you're a caterer, personal chef, or have a food truck. And you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Of course, this show would not be possible without the help from our sponsors. So here is a message from this week's sponsor, the United States Personal Chef Association. Over the past 30 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it allowed personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides a strategic backbone to those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience with their meal. USPCA provides training to become a personal chef through our preparatory membership. Looking to showcase your products or services to our chefs and their clients? Partnership opportunities are available. Call Angela today at one 995 2138 extension 705 or email her at aprather at uspca.com for membership and partner info. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. We were just talking before I started rolling about how excited I am for this cookbook. And I think, you know, I think it's time for this. There don't seem to be a lot of cookbooks on Ethiopian cooking, at least not that I could find.
1: Yeah, that's actually very true. I mean, there are a few. Um, I think the last one that I saw that was published was back in like 2016. But I think the big thing is from the culture point of view, Um, a lot of people just learn from their family. And it's like just passed down through tradition from family from family and and so forth. Um, And also how I learned. (laughs) And so that's why I don't think anyone tends to actually put something together or thinks of like, hey, this will be something that people will be interested in.
0: I guess you kind of do it maybe for people outside of your culture, right? Like does that make sense? Like I'm sure if you're Ethiopian you don't need an Ethiopian cookbook, but you know, people <laughs> like me, I definitely need a template.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me like when I was putting this together to be very honest, my first uh motivator besides my multiple friends who are non-Ethiopian asking me for recipes all the time and I'm like maybe this is something I need to write down was uh for somebody like my sister. I think you know, she we were all born in Ethiopia and raised there, but she left when she was a lot younger, um, and so she didn't get a chance to learn and experience it the way I did. Um, and so I know she loves the food and the culture, and she wants to cook it, but how is she going to learn, right? And so it's basically for anybody who is Ethiopian, but either was born in the U.S. or like in the Western world, or just, you know, left too young, like my sister, and would love to learn how to make their own traditional cuisine. And so that was like a market that I was really considering. And then of course, there's people like you, like you said, you know, that love and enjoy Ethiopian food, and want to learn how to make it at home and um, not necessarily always going out, but just kind of putting it in the roster of your weekly dinners.
0: How old were you when you moved to the US?
1: I was 12. So I was uh, born Still in pretty Ortiz. young. Yeah, I mean, true. <laughs> that's not, that's not a lie. I, I was pretty young, but, um, I managed to start sneaking in into the kitchen at a very young age, even though I was not allowed in there. But also, once we moved to the States, culture shock, life change, and what so, like, you know, cause kind of like a little bit of background when we did live at home, we did have maids. So they're the ones that did all the cooking and the cleaning. Um, and then, you know, my mom was very much involved, like every she did all the menu planning and for we had parties every weekend. And when that was happening, my aunts would come over and they would, you know, all cook together. And that's when I would sneak in to learn. But then moving to the States, you know, culture shock, no maids. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was like, OK, well, my mom's cooking by herself now. And then it would be like, OK, no, Lula, go in and help. So that was a great opportunity for me to not only to watch or, and um, or just look or be able to help a little bit for all the non-cutting, hard stuff, but then I was like really involved and learning hands-on.
0: Now, did you have any Ethiopian community that you were around when you moved here? Like, was there a population or were you kind of few and far between, for lack of a better term?
1: Oh, yeah. there's. So, as you know, the largest Ethiopian population outside of Ethiopia is in D.C. Um, and then after that, it's in Dallas. Um, and so, we have, uh, I mean, we have a lot of friends and family in Dallas. So, a lot of my uncles and aunts, cousins all lived there. So, you know, it was essentially going from one huge family that we had back home to another family in the state. So, um, and then there's, you know, the population. It's like there's a huge community there. So it's like from the churches to events and whatnot. Uh, From that part of it, it was an easier transition. It's the other stuff that was a little bit of harder. So one of them being I didn't speak any English when I moved. Oh, (laughs) wow. Yes. So um, myself and my younger sister, we actually went to an Italian school back home So I only spoke Italian and Amharic, the Ethiopian language. Uh, My brother went to a different school. He went to an Indian school and he learned, he knew English, so he was okay. But I basically moved here and I was in middle school and went from, oh, no, you can't attend classes. Now you're in ESL (laughs) because everything is in English.
0: Did you end up then having like a Texas accent because you learned English in, in Dallas?
1: You know, I do say y'all a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I say y'all I say y'all a lot and I'm from like the Boston area. I don't know yeah, where I
1: well, got And that's the thing is I've, you know, we've, I've moved around a lot all over uh, the U.S. I've lived, I used to live in the East Coast. Uh, now I'm in the West Coast and I've, you know, then I used to also live out of the country and so forth. So my accent, I think, is like a combination I either get you have a, like a, an, East, an East Coast accent or I get you don't have an accent at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have an accent until I move around and people tell me I have an accent, but I've lived in like seven different places myself. So it's kind of like a mix of everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think your vocabulary just kind of adapts and adjusts based on where you're living. Um, and for me, y'all <laughs> is definitely one of those things that, I can't get out of my, like, how y'all doing? Like, it's just, I can't help it. Y'all make
0: sense. It's you (laughs) plural. If there's more than one person, it's y'all.
1: I know, but you'd be surprised, like, especially in LA, people are like, what?
0: (laughs) So So you wrote a cookbook. Do you have Mm -hmm. any experience in the food world? Like, most of the people on my show are chefs, former chefs, culinary entrepreneurs. Like, did you have any experience in the food world at all? Have you ever worked in a restaurant, cooked professionally had anything kind of tying you to the culinary world?
1: Uh, Yes, I've been in the hospitality for over 20 years. um, And I did work in restaurants. Now I'm still in hospitality, but I'm on the hotel side. But I've been in restaurant world for well over 10 to 12 years. Um, And the last one being when I was living in San Francisco. So but I'm I'm mostly from like the front of the house. But so I was like, you know, I did everything from hostess to all the way being a, an AGM, right? So like running the entire show. But with that being said, I worked very closely with my chefs and um, a lot of my friends are chefs. And so anytime that it went from events or something would happen or, hey, we're short staffed in the kitchen and I'll just jump in right into the line. That's right.
0: Trial <laughs> or, by fire.
1: Always, right? I mean, you know how it is in the industry where you're like, you just go where you're needed. And so, um, not going to lie, I kind of miss it sometimes where I kind of just want to go and stage at a restaurant just to kind of... Just to get it back, right? <laughs> just just one day. Like, there's something about having a busy, busy day at work and then like you just pull that last ticket and it's like kitchen closed. It's like this great gratification of like a good service is hard to get. And I think anything.
0: Yeah, it's definitely like that adrenaline junkie kind of feeling, right? Like that rush. There's nothing like that. So why write a cookbook? I mean, even if you have experience in the food world, that just seems like a daunting task to me. Like people ask me all the time, like, when's your cookbook coming out? I'm like, uh, I don't know. That sounds kind of crazy. So yeah, yeah, (laughs) you know, like I know why you wanted to do it. Um, But just like the process, like, like deciding that you were actually going to do that. How did that come about and get it going? In
1: 100% agreement, it is not easy. It was not something that I just woke up one day and was like, typed it up and I was done. It was something I've actually been wanting to do for a little over seven years, just because every time I cook something and make something, people are always asking me for recipes or my sister's calling me and saying, Hey, I really want to make this like, can you just guide me through it or email me a recipe or something like that. And I've always just been like, I need to put this together and not just for family or for like in order to like share my culture. Cause I'm, you know, I'm a very proud Ethiopian and I want people to know that there's this great, amazing food and culture that you're missing out on. Um, and to be able to share it with the world. And unfortunately, (laughs) uh, the, you know, I've been in uh, hospitality for so long that my work schedule is usually like 12 to 14 hour days. And, you know, it's a great idea, but when do you have the time to do it? Um, My, I guess, blessing in disguise was um, when the lockdown happened and I was actually furloughed for like 18 months. That's a long time. Yeah. And so, and for people like us, you know, most hospitality or people are A-type, right? We need to be busy. We need to stay busy because just sitting around doing nothing is we just, I think week one is all I could do. And then I was like, I need to put all this energy into something. Um, And it was actually my sister that was like, you know, you've been meaning to write this cookbook. What about this is the right opportunity? And then... I kind of started doing it, and then I just really got involved, and then it was just two years of a lot of menu t- uh, tastes, like testing and everything. Because um, Ethiopian food, you know, especially the way I was taught, is there's no measurements, right? You do it by look and by mm-hmm. taste. That's
0: how I mean. That's how a lot of us cook. I think that's one of the hardest challenges in restaurants in general, not just in cookbooks. Is like so many chefs say they cook by taste, right? But then you've got to have a team who knows how to.
1: Execute that. So the same thing
0: with like a cookbook, you gotta kind of have that nailed down, right?
1: Yeah, and that was my issue. Was you know, even um, like my friends and stuff always say, you know, you measure with your heart. Because I'm like, I look and I'm like, "Mm, a little bit, a little bit more. And so just to have to like, you know, I'm like, wait, I need to basically give this recipe to somebody who's either never made it or um, has never even eaten it before, and they need to execute it the same way I would. So, to have to like measure every single thing out, there was a lot of testing that I had to do to make sure that, if I tell you four tablespoons, it really is four tablespoons, you know? Um, and so it was definitely a lot of work, but I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I received my first copy, and, and having all that hard work, you know, seven years of a dreaming and two years of hard work. In your hands is one of the best feelings I've. I think you could ever have.
0: Well, it's a beautiful book. I got a copy of the book uh, in preparation for this conversation, and I'm super excited to cook from it. My experience is there seems to be some nuance in there. Not your book, not your book in particular, but just like Ethiopian food. When I eat it, has so much flavor and mm-hmm. depth you read the recipes, they always look so basic and simple. And even when I follow them, I still feel like, I don't know if it's like that love. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like I make Mm -hmm. the recipe measurement by measurement and you eat it and it's just not as good as like my favorite place I like to go to eat, you know? And I don't, I talked to one of my favorite chefs um, who has an Ethiopian restaurant. He says, in his opinion, it's probably like time, like that it, he's like, you know, when I cook down my onions, I cook them for like four hours. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe that's it.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's like, to be honest, like the traditionally. So my the reason why my cookbook is a little bit different is also the fact that majority of the people that I know are working um, individuals who who has the four hours to make a stew, None of us. Yeah. And I mean, like, and to be honest, as much as I'd like to say that I'm that organized, I don't have all day Sunday to prep and cook for the week, right? I would like to say I do, but I don't. Um, And so if you're not spending all day on Sunday making all these stews for the whole week, then you're going to come home after work and nothing is going to sound good to, hey, this dish takes four hours to complete. (laughs) So... Uh, the way I, you know, kind of like your friend said is the dishes, you can still get the final, the exact same final product without trying, with basically without missing any form of, of the flavors or the, you can still build the flavors in a shorter amount of time. Um, and I mean, I guess my proof of it was when I initially started this whole project, my, favorite and worst critic was my mother who you know I obviously showed her the recipe and she's like what what do you mean 30 minutes (laughs) there's no way (laughs) and she's like no change that do it the correct way and just showed me the like you know telling me how to do it differently and I was like okay give me a minute and I went into her kitchen and I made the mr. wet which is the lentil stew And I came out and I was like, mom, try this. And then she's like, "Uh uh-huh, see, much better. That's the way you're supposed to make it. And I was like, no, mom, that's my recipe. (laughs) And she's like, oh, then never mind. And so getting mom's approval was, of course, everything, right? And it's one of those things where I think if you essentially layer in the flavors and even the shortcuts that I take is not at It's not, it doesn't take away from the flavors or the building of the flavors.
0: And I think that's what's so great about this book, because like many chefs, I think I have a cookbook addiction, right? Like I probably have too many cookbooks and I look at them, but then when it's time to actually make food at home for the week, like I don't have time for that. These cookbooks, I I use them more for inspiration because uh, one recipe is like four pages and like 30 ingredients. You know what I mean? Like you get whatever famous chef's cookbook comes out, or, you know, it, it could be Thomas Keller's book. It's like, I'm not making any of that for my family because it's just like crazy. I want a book that I can cook tonight's dinner and get it on the table. So that's another reason I'm really excited for this book because my family loves Ethiopian food. And I'm hoping that it's something that I can, you know, bang out in an hour.
1: And that's the good thing is like, I mean, you know, yes, your family loves Ethiopian food, but there's some people who don't even know Ethiopian food or have seen it, or like, they're just like, it seems like something so far off and hard. And then they'll look at the recipe and be like, wait, I have most of these ingredients in my cupboard. Like, I just need to get the berbere, which is, you know, that's, that's something that's a staple, as you already know. And you can execute majority of the dishes.
0: Oh, yeah, Um, I was reading it yesterday. It's like beef, I've got that I'm growing jalapenos, I'm growing tomatoes, I've got the spices. You know, we just picked up some injera at the market this week. It's like, I'm good to go. There's like, you know, we're we're growing green, you know, it's collard greens I've got, you know, it's, it's super easy. There's nothing in there that's really hard to find.
1: Yeah. And then that's the thing. It's like, you know, the only thing I suggest when people are doing it is if there's certain things that, you know, obviously you can substitute, but then if it says like Ethiopian butter or olive oil don't try to use regular butter. <laughs> like don't try to use the butter from your grocery store because it's Ethiopian butter is very specific and very different. So if you can't find that, then just use like vegetable oil or olive oil. Um, And other than that, that would be basically the most difficult thing from the recipe. Everything else is just very light and friendly. And, you know, most of it, again, that was by a lot of trial and error where I would send it. I purposely only sent it to people who were not anywhere near the hospitality world or industry, don't know anything about restaurants or food, because I wanted it to be just like the average Joe who picks up this book and goes, is this going to scare them away? (laughs) You know? Um, And I would send it to friends and then they'll email me back or call me back and say, Oh, my God, this was so great. But this part was confusing and stuff. And that's how I edited and changed it to make it very user friendly.
0: So that's great advice for anyone, I think, who's looking to write a cookbook, because that's probably the biggest challenge, right? Is like making sure that your potential reader knows how to make these things.
1: Yeah. And I think for also like a lot of chefs, I mean, I can tell you, you know, I sometimes want to make a, something, a very specific different dish and I'll call a friend of mine who's a chef and say, hey, send me a recipe. And then they'll send it to me. I'm like, okay, can you send it more like in layman's term? Because <laughs> sometimes when you're in like your chef world, you're like, you know, kind of get too specific and this. And then you're like, okay, some people are not going to understand this and they're not going to get this. And so just think of somebody who's never cooked a day in their life. Can they grab this book and make everything if they follow the steps?
0: Now, one of the things I noticed, you know, there can be some spicy food, you know, Um, and a lot of your recipes have like, say, three tablespoons of like the Burberry or the sub is like one tablespoon turmeric. Like, what Mm -hmm. about just cutting down to like two tablespoons or one tablespoon of the Burberry? Like, what what are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, I completely agree with that. I mean, you're so I don't know if you got to the part of my book where I um, talk about my favorite test to do with people. And it's, that's my Taco Bell test. <laughs> right, know. with the
0: sauce, the levels of the saucing.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, a lot of people see that and go, really, Taco Bell? What's that got to do with Ethiopian food? That's Mexican or whatever it may be. And I always gauge it by saying, like, listen, everybody's palate is different. Like, I grew up eating this food, so I can literally eat raw serranos and not even blink an eye because that's my level. And there's some people who even find black pepper to be spicy, right? And so I, you are right. I mean, they definitely can use less berbere and get the same flavor. But now if you make like, let's say, for example, if you make the cigawet, which is the beef stew, and instead of using the three or four tablespoons, you only use one, it will still come out good. It will be flavorful. But then if you go to an Ethiopian restaurant and order it, the food's not going to match, right? So all the recipes are very flexible to a point where they can definitely, you know, you can tweak them based on your palate and your, you know, the way you want it. But if you're looking to make the authentic version, it's just to follow it. But if you're like, I don't even want to mess with spice because the only way to completely avoid the spices instead of using barbare is to use The turmeric, which is in our in our cultures, you know, you have like, for example, the beef stew, the cigar, which is the spicy version or alicha, which translates like mild. And that's the one with the turmeric. And that's why I did it with the two, because if not, then the book would have been like 400 pages long, being like one tablespoon, two tablespoon and so forth.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that my kids can tolerate spice. It's funny, you know, I have twins, they're 10 years old, and they've probably started eating Ethiopian food when they were like six. But you go to a restaurant and we order this food, you know, and I think the server is always kind of like, Oh, that's spicy. Yeah. yeah like, are you we're, sure? We're, like, like we're good. Like, I don't want you to be like, oh, these are like white Americans. Like, tone it down. It's like, send out everything the way that it's supposed to like be. Like normal. And yes. then we'll just, we'll gauge from there. Because we, you know, we'll get a platter with like seven or eight different things on. So, if, mm-hmm. you know, not everything is always like blowing your doors off hot. So of it's course. like, there'll be plenty of things to eat on there. And if something's got a little extra spice, no worries. But they, they like that. The lentils, like... My kids eat lentils from every culture. They would eat lentils every single day, whether it be Indian food. So we love that. So it's like we always have to get double lentils. You know, we'll get two different types of the lentils um, when we eat out.
1: That's the good thing about like this dish. And I mean, for me, you know, kind of like you said, almost every culture has some form of a lentil dish, right? And so this could be one of those, like personally, you know, the way I love and enjoy Ethiopian food is with injera, just because that's what we eat everything with. But there's some people who don't even like the flavor or the taste of injera. They find it a little bit too sour or too, like they don't like the consistency of the sponginess. So that's why in my book, it's like, no, you can still eat it, but eat it with pita bread or eat it over rice. And it's still a delicious dish. Um But, you know, for from like the spice level point of view, you know, like you said, there's such a variety and you've as you've eaten already, you know, going to an Ethiopian restaurant, we do love to eat on one big platter, right, with all the different dishes. So you can go back and forth from like spicy, not so spicy, meat, vegetable, <laughs> there's always a salad. <laughs> and it's just an overall like a fun meal that so you can create, don't have to do all of them, but you can do one or two, um, and then just kind of build off that.
0: And I think that's what makes it kid-friendly. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid to go out to an Ethiopian restaurant. Like, they've never had it. Like, I don't have a lot of friends in the suburbs here who go out and try it. And I'm like, yeah, my kids love it. But that whole idea, like, who doesn't love, like, eating with your hands? Like, anytime my kids get to eat with their hands, they hate eating with silverware to begin with, even at home. But, like, that idea of, like, sitting down the table and just, like, grabbing some with your hands and digging right in, it's fun. And it makes my kids want to eat. Like they aren't interested in going to some, I don't know, like French restaurant and sit down and eating with a fork. Like when we ask them where they want to go. Proper silverware. Yeah. Like that, they want that. And they also like sushi. Now, listen, my kids are not like all foodies. Like they also hate normal stuff like normal kids do, but like those are their their, um, favorite cuisines. But I tell people, you should definitely take your kids and just Try yeah. some, like, what's what's the worst that could happen? And I say that with all food in general. I'm so uh, surprised every time I meet grown adults who, like, won't try something. It's like, what's the worst that happens? It's something you've never had. You don't love it. Cool. At least you tried it, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm in 100% agreement with you. Like, I'm always, always trying out new places, new. And then if you even give me a remote chance of trying a new cuisine, I'm there. Because it's like, maybe you like it. Maybe you love it and it's your favorite thing, or maybe you're like, mm, tried it, not my thing, and then, you know, keep trying more. I just think sometimes people are afraid of the unknown, right? Like, no, I know that if I go to, a like, an American restaurant, I know what I'm going to get, but what if I go there and I don't know what they're serving? And it's like, how are you going to find out if you don't go? <laughs> so.
0: And we eat tons of, we love the vegetarian. Like my wife and I used to be vegetarians. We eat meat now. But when we first had it, we were vegetarians. And that's one of the reasons we love it is there's so many great vegetarian options. But that, again, that idea of a platter where you're not just ordering one dish, like we get a vegetarian platter that has like five or six things on it. So again, if you don't like one thing, no big deal. There's, you know, five other so things. So many other options. You're going to find something <laughs> you like. You bring this huge platter. But there's nothing weird on it. You know, it's like lentils. Everyone's had lentils. Potatoes, you know. Collards.
1: No, I know, and I think I've been asked before, where it's like, "Can you tell me what your food is like?" And I'm like, "What do you mean?" And it's like, "Well, what like, what do you guys eat?" I'm like, "I mean, just vegetables and stews and stuff." And then they're like, "But what kind of meat?" I'm like, "It depends. Beef, chicken." (laughs) And they're like, "Oh, so you guys eat beef?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Like, so I think a lot of it is either the misconception or the not knowing, and also not trying, not trying to find out because. I've taken a lot of first timers to go eat Ethiopian food and they're just like, this is the best thing ever. How come I've never had it? I'm like, been here all along.
0: (laughs) That's what I want everyone to get out of this podcast is like how amazing. That's why I was really excited to have you on the show when it was like, oh, wow, I've never had anyone on the show who cooks this, you know, the cookbook. Like, I just want to help spread the word because I love it. And every time I tell people, most of them haven't had it. And they're kind of like, what?
1: I don't know. Thank you so much. I'm very excited being here. And I think also even when I was like first looking at it and I was like, oh, he's in Maryland. Oh, this is going to be easy. He knows Ethiopian food. You have no choice. (laughs) We used to have a restaurant
0: in town. I'm so disappointed. I don't know what happened. They were here when we moved to town and about 10 years ago they left. So I don't have anything super close. But I mean, again, DC's like we, we go to Falls Church, Virginia, usually for our favorite place. And that's like 40 minutes to get there. So.
1: Hey, I've driven hours to, for my favorite restaurant, so that, that's just me, though. Like, if I'm craving something and I want a specific thing, distance is nothing. I will make it happen.
0: And I want to talk about coffee for a second, because I find this super interesting, and I'm so glad you put this in the book. So we went to our favorite Ethiopian restaurant a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. The chef took me to the market next door, and he buys me this five-pound bag of green <laughs> coffee beans, and yes. I'm like... Like what? You know, like I buy my coffee roasted in the store. Like, do you you guys cook your own coffee? Like every, yes. everywhere in every yes. one of the markets, they're green beans, and it's because I think traditionally, like Americans, we don't do that. I don't know a single person who roast their own beans. So I got this bag. I haven't done anything with it. And he was like really quickly talking to me. He's like, you wash the beans, you toast them in a frying pan. When they're brown, they're done. I'm like, what are you talking about, (laughs) chef? Like, I'm going to have to send you a DM on Facebook. So I haven't done it yet. So when I I got the book, I'm like, oh my God, there's a thing in here about coffee beans. So why, why are you starting with green beans? Like, is there not a culture of like having already roasted coffee like Oh, so
1: it's not even that. I think the big part of it is, you know, first of all, coffee was found in Ethiopia, right? So coffee is a huge thing in our background. And then we have something that's called an Ethiopian coffee ceremony. And so for us, like you said, in the Western world, when you consider coffee, you're instantly as grab and go, right? Right. Versus for us, yeah, less than that, especially if you're like me, I just drink my coffee black. So it's, I don't even need anything, just pour it in a cup and we're going. But in the culture, in Ethiopian culture, our coffee ceremony is not about just the coffee. It's a time like to chat and catch up. And it's a very intimate thing. And it happens on a daily basis where it starts from the beginning, right? Everybody sits around. There's all the pot that you have, like all the little teapots. And then you have the coffee beans that are raw. And you start essentially uh, roasting them in front of your guests and then letting the aroma just kind of build in the room. And the people are talking. And then once the coffee, you know, once the beans are roasted, then you mash it up, usually in a, like a mortar and pestle. Um, if you're trying to speed it up, you can use a blender, but, you know, whatever works. And then you boil some water, you put it in the jebana, which is our the actual coffee pot, and you just let it, once that's boiled, you let it sit. Again, people at this time are talking, usually having little snacks and um, desserts or whatnot. And then you brew the first round. The first round gets served. And, uh, you know, also because it's being roasted and mashed and everything in front of you think of this coffee as like not your regular coffee that you get at starbucks but more of like if you've ever been to miami and you have like the cubans that have the cortaditos like the very small very strong espresso like that's basically the strength of this coffee so it's gonna be super strong so that's why our even our coffee cups are very tiny like almost like shot glasses and then you drink that coffee, and then you give back your cups, and then you brew the second round, and then you do the same thing again in the third round, and then the ceremony's over, and everybody can go about their day. And this happens every single day. It's just part of our culture. Uh, like, for example, back every time I go home, I wake up in the morning, breakfast is out, the coffee ceremony starts. Once all that is done, then you leave the house wherever you're doing, you come home for lunch and here goes another coffee ceremony. And then again, later on that evening, you have dinner and then there's the coffee ceremony and you're always around friends and family and talking and enjoying the coffee. But it's more of like a time to really talk and catch up and spend time with the people that you're with. than the concept of caffeine in my hand while I go, go, go.
0: Kind of like, I guess, like Japanese tea ceremony kind of thing. Exactly,
1: right? exactly. So it's just, it's, a, a, you know, of course, if you want it, I'm sure they, they you know, if you asked them, like, can you roast it for me or whatever, make a it, roaster it for you and you can take that. But once you've actually experienced the full thing from beginning to end, from the roasting it to, you know, actually mashing it and then brewing it or whatever, first of all, the coffee is going to taste very different. And then while you're doing all that, you're having so much time talking and catching up. I get it. You can do that every day in, <laughs> in the Western world. But um, when I, you know, my entire family's in the DMV area. So when I go home, especially because they're all Northern Virginia, I, you know, when I go to my mom's house, that's the one thing I look forward to, Um, like, you know, to just be able to do that coffee ceremony and just sit there and talk and catch up with her and you know, my brother, my sister, aunts, and everybody. And just, yes, the coffee is there, but it's more of the bringing us together. Um, and, like, as you've seen, like, the whole culture is about community, right? So we eat together, we have the coffee ceremony together, and it's all about community,
0: so you think it's easy enough for me to do? Like if I follow your recipe and I, oh, yeah, I should just absolutely, ju- I should just jump right in and make my coffee.
1: I think you should just
0: jump right in and do it right. now. Well, like I said, a, the only thing,
1: the only thing is, just remember it's not going to be the same of like the coffee that you brew from your Keurig. It's going to be super strong. <laughs> so okay, I'm ready. Pace it out <laughs> so so that you're not like wired and missing sleep.
0: Is there a gateway recipe or two in the book? Like for people who've never had the food, is there something that you recommend like people start with? One I or two definitely
1: recipes? say like um, depending, right? So if you are a vegan or a vegetarian, definitely start with the lentil stew, uh, which is the miserwet. I think that is gonna be the most easiest segue to just kind of like, hey, I know lentils. I, I'm familiar like I'm familiar with this. It's not like straight into something crazy. Um, and then if you are a meat eater, then I definitely recommend the tips, which is a beef stir fry. And who doesn't love a beef stir fry, right? So,
0: yeah, and those are both classic dishes. Like, again, exactly. those are things that I order all the time. I know they're going to be delicious.
1: Exactly. And so I think especially for somebody who's never made it or never eaten it before, I think those two from like the vegetarian to the meat side those are like two staple dishes that you can start with and then build on. And then work, work up
0: to the raw beef.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I would never say get start making kitfo. No, maybe just baby step it. My up.
0: kids ordered that one time and it was good, but it was a lot because it was like an entree portion and they kept saying like, "Yes, we really want this." And you know, I want them to try new things and have experiences. So we got I was like, "Man, this is like a lot of raw beef here." <laughs>
1: exactly. Well, that's another thing, too. You can always, for future, when you get it, you can say, oh, can we have half of it uh, cooked and the other half raw? So you can kind of like pace it out, right? So that (laughs) you're not like shocking your stomach with I mean, because essentially it's beef tartare on crack,
0: (laughs) right? So I love beef tartare. It's one of those things that I don't make at home that often. But if I go to a restaurant and they have it and it's a good restaurant, I, I tend to get it. Oh, I don't even think we talked about what is the name of your book? It's called enivla, which
1: uh, directly translates to let's eat. So it's essentially like Italians say mangia, um, nivla" means let's eat. And it's because it's kind of like another thing, part of our culture, where when you see somebody, you always want to feed them, right? <laughs> and so somebody walks into your house and you're like, oh, let's eat enivla, nivla," or You're sitting down eating at a restaurant and you see somebody walk in and you're immediately being like, oh, please, please, a nibla. And so that's why I thought it was like perfect because every single thing in the culture and the food is constantly around eating. (laughs) And whether it be a fun event or, you know, kind of passing by or whatever the situation may be, I just thought, what is the best one word that would capture? what our culture is and that's the one word that I could think of.
0: I think it's a great name for a cookbook.
1: Thank you.
0: And the book comes out, is it October 4th?
1: Yep. It's actually out on pre-sale on, you know, multiple avenues from Amazon to Target, Barnes and Noble, but it will be out on October 4th.
0: Well we link all that stuff in the show notes. So I'll make sure everyone knows where to find this book when it comes out.
1: Oh perfect. Thank you so much.
0: Well, please let me know if you come out to the DMV. I definitely will. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It has been so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much for listening. This has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.